Today is the 24th of November 2020 and this evening we're going to take up a story uh, from The Hidden Lamp. This is a wonderful collection of stories of women in Buddhism, um, Hidden Lamp, Stories of 25 Centuries of Awakened Women, edited by Florence Caplow and Susan Moon. And uh, this, this story, we, we have actually looked at it before. Uh, but in Sashin, about six years ago, it's called Chiyono's No Water, No Moon. And uh, I'll just start off by reading, reading the story, the whole story. Uh, Chiyono was a servant in a Zen convent who wanted to practice Zazen. One day she approached an elderly nun and said, I'm of humble birth. I can't read or write and must work all the time. Is there any possibility that I could attain the way of the Buddha even though I have no skills? The nun answered her, This is wonderful, my dear. In Buddhism there, is no dis- there are no distinctions between people. There is only this. Each person must hold fast to the desire to, awakening, to awaken and cultivate a heart of great compassion. People are complete as they are, If you don't fall into delusive thoughts, there is no Buddha and no sentient being. There is only one complete nature. If you want to know your true nature, you need to turn toward the source of your delusive thoughts. This is called Zazen. Chiyono said with happiness, With this practice as my companion, I have only to go about my daily life practicing day and night. After months of wholehearted practice, she went out on a full moon night to draw some water from the well. The bottom of her old bucket, held together by bamboo strips, suddenly gave way, and the reflection of the moon vanished with the water. When she saw this, she attained great realization. Her enlightenment poem was this. With this and that, I tried to keep the bucket together, and then the bottom fell out. Where the water does not collect, the moon does not dwell. That's our story. Just a little bit about um, the the only named protagonist in the story is Chiono. The full name is um, Chiono Adachi. she was a, a, a laywoman who was da- ordained quite late in life by um, uh, and her, she received the she sees the um, the Dharma name Mugai Nyodai, <coughs> the the master who uh, ordained her was actually Chinese Wu Shui Zhuyuan Zhuyuan. His Japanese name was Mugaku Sogen. And uh, Mugai Nyodas is an important figure in Japanese Zen um, because she was the, the first um, female monk 
Japanese woman to receive Inca, that is formal Dharma transmission. And she became um, a founder of uh, several convents, including the, the leading women's monastery of the medieval period. Uh, she was roughly um, around at the same time as Master Dogen. She was uh, just a little bit younger than Master Dogen. Um, this, the story that we're, we're looking at doesn't quite fit with um, what's the rest of what is known about Chione, no, because um, in the story it's a, she's, a, she's a poor servant girl and she can't read or write. But um, Chiono was a member of, it seems, was a member of the Adachi family, which was an aristocratic family that had a lot to do with the power of the day. And she also wrote poetry. But sometimes, um, which would suggest she was not illiterate, um, but sometimes these um, great teachers would, would sort of, um, different teaching stories would adhere to them. And um, we can't be sure really what her life was like because we don't really have much information from the time. The, the biographies that were, were written again to, about her would, were done several centuries after her life. Um, but um, in, this, in this case, that the, this, um, although the, the, the circumstances may, may be created later on, um, probably we can be pretty sure that her enlightenment verse about the bottom of the bucket falling out um, was was hers, and then then additional additional teaching points were added to the to this um, the story of her awakening on the bucket on the bucket breaking up. And I'm um, not sure which came first, but this image of um, the bottom falling out of a bucket is is um, a, a, um, a image that is used in other places in Zen to describe um, a thoroughgoing enlightenment experience. Um, in in 1298, which was around about um, the year of her death. Um, a, a, a portrait statue was made of her. It's called a Chinso Chokoku in Japanese. And it was something that was um, really only done for revered teachers. Um, some of you may have seen these in um, museums or uh, photographs of them. And they're really extraordinary uh, portraits. They're, they're life-size. Um, the, the teacher, the monk or the nun um, is sitting on the Dharma seat, the seat that, that, um, from which they would have given Taisho. And they're extremely lifelike, often have piercing eyes. And um, one of these, these um, uh, Chinso Chokokus was made of Muganyodai. And that they're, they're so lifelike because their purpose is to commemorate the teacher and especially to capture the teacher's spirit. And um, the, the, this Chinso Chokoku for um, Muganyodai was um, sort of uncovered sometime in the 20th century 
and it sparked um, sparked some interest in this this um, spiritual matriarch of women's Rinzai Zen, uh, because her her existence had mostly been ignored down through the centuries, and actually there is evidence that um, just after she died, um, her uh, no, um, her knowledge about her or information about her, her papers and so forth were, were actively suppressed by her Dharma nephew, uh, Muso Sokoseki, so uh, one of the Dharma heirs of, of um, uh, one of her brother monks, who was also sanctioned as a teacher. This Muso Sokoseki, some of you may recognize um, his other name, Muso Kokshi, quite a wonderful little book of his teachings called um, Dream Conversations but I must say after hearing this <laughs> I'm a little bit less willing to um, go to that text again so um, that's just a little bit of, of, um, of background um, to, to this story um, let's, have, let's have a look at the story in a little bit more detail now. version that we have in the hidden lamp um, is a uh, condensed version of um, the story. Um, and some of the details in the longer story are, are quite useful and interesting. So it starts off with um, uh, the setting of Chiono being a servant in a, in a Zen convent. So she was, she was there, um, it seems, um, in a uh, small temple um, with practicing with, with um, other nuns and that these nuns um, did sessions and um, offered, offered sittings for the, the local surrounding area so, so lay people would come and sit and according to the story uh, Chiono would would um, would spy on the sitters um, through chinks in the curtains that that hang over the door where the the zendo was, um, and in the story she starts off just trying to imitate the postures of the um, these the, the people practicing there in the zendo. Um, Sort of a little bit like a sort of Cinderella figure, sort of left out or or ignored or, or neglected, and it says that all she all she acquired for her efforts were sore knees. And so first out, we don't have this in our in our shortened version of the story, but first of all, she approaches the youngest of the nuns, and asks how to do zazen, and the nun replies that her duty was to carry out her responsibilities to the best of abilities, and that, this young nun, nun said, will be your sazen. And, uh, but unfortunately, Chiono t 
took this to mean sort of mind your own business or don't don't concern yourself with things that are beyond your station. We don't know if that was the way the young nun meant it, but um, if she was inexperienced herself, um, she may have just been repeating what she'd heard, but without really uh, understanding it and could have given that impression. Um, so first Chiona was kind of rebuffed a bit and she kind of continued to do her duties and this would be heavy work that she was doing um, hauling water up from the from the uh, a well up to the monastery and um, uh, collecting firewood um, chopping it perhaps and distributing around it around to the kitchen and other places so she continued with this, this work. But then the story says, she noticed, however, that people of all classes joined the nuns during the meditation sessions. Therefore, there was no reason why she too could not practice. This time she questioned the oldest of the nuns. So you could say she gets a bit bolder, and she, so she goes to the, the oldest nun. And then the second nun takes a lot more time with her gives her basic instruction, tells her how to sit, how to place her hands, how to fix her eyes, regulate her breathing. And then um, she says, then drop body and mind. Looking from within, inquire, where is mind? Observing from without, ask, where is mind to be found? Only this. As other thoughts arise, let them pass without following them and return to searching for mind. In our version it says, um, there is only this, each person must hold fast to the desire to awaken and cultivate a heart of great compassion. People are complete as they are. If you don't fall into delusive thoughts, there is no Buddha and no sentient being. There is only one complete nature. If you want to know your true nature, you need to turn toward the source of your delusive thoughts. This is called Zazen. Turn towards the source of your delusive thoughts. Practice, in other words, to, to practice right where our delusive thoughts arise. We don't have to get rid of them. In fact, the fact that that is counterproductive. But to, to just write where the thoughts arise, question that. Where do they come from? What is experiencing them? Um, Chiyona really rejoices in getting this, this, um, this instruction after all this time of, of not really knowing what she was doing. She says, When I first began to practice Zazen, the various things I had seen and heard in the past kept coming up in my mind. When I tried to stop them, they only increased. This teaching that I have just heard shows me that when random thoughts occur in my mind, I should let them exhaust themselves. 
I should not make any effort to try to stop my thoughts. Yes, the nun responded, otherwise it would be like using blood to wash out bloodstains. It's a very vivid image. If we try to stop our thoughts, it's like using blood to wash out bloodstains. In other words, adding more thoughts on top of the original thoughts. According to an ancient teacher, this is still the old nun talking, sudden enlightenment is the medicine that cures our endless sickness. Chiono said, If I carry on with this practice, commendable results will surely appear of their own accord. Surely I will see Buddha nature clearly and truly achieve Buddhahood in an instant. The, the nun intoned in a strong voice, You have just now understood that all sentient beings have already attained Buddhahood. The world of life and death and the world of nirvana are like a dream. In other words, the world of our ordinary world, our unenlightened world, isn't separate, isn't distinct from the world of nirvana, in other words, the world of enlightenment. So she's giving a strong encouragement here to see beyond these, these false distinctions. So the, one of the versions that I found of the, the story is quite long. It's about um, probably four or five times as long as the version in the hidden lamp. And it's, um, we won't look at too much of it, but this one bit that I found particularly interesting in that it, it, was, a, it was an example or an illustration of um, a kind, certain kind of teaching. At one point it describes how this old nun um, called out Chiono's name as she was walking away. Chiono! And then Chiono, Chiono answered and turned around and the old nun said, your aspiration to practice is clearly very, very deep and unchanging. And then later again she calls out, uh, Chiono! And then she says, and Chiono answers again, but then she says, just now when I called out Chiono, why did you adhere to the sound of my voice? You should have just listened to it and returned directly to the source of perception. Never forget, birth and death are the great matter. All things pass swiftly by. Do not wait. With each in-breath, with each out-breath, rely on your practice at all times. When something is in your way, you must not grieve or linger over it, even though you may have regrets later. Hold on to this form, form firmly. And then later again, the old nun again calls out, Chiono! But this time, Chiono did not allow her ears to become attached to the nun's voice, returning directly to the source of her perception. In this manner, she continued her practice day after day, month after month. goes on to describe her, her in, increasing um, intensity of practice. Sometimes sitting all day without eating or speaking or, or, or sitting up through the night.
says, sometimes, although she had eyes, she didn't see, and although she had ears, she didn't hear. Her movements were like a wooden person. The assembly of nuns at the temple began to talk about her, saying that realisation was near at hand. So we have this, um, this picture of her, her um, entering deeply into this practice um, and getting into states of, of absorption, samadhi. And then after months of this wholehearted practice, um, she went out on a full moon night to draw some water from the well. The bottom of her old bucket, held together by bamboo strips, suddenly gave way and the reflection of the moon vanished with the water. Uh, when she saw this, she attained great realisation. Um, some people have probably seen the kind of bucket that um, is being described here. It's made of staves of wood that fit together. There's a, there's a round piece on the bottom and then the staves are, are held together with sort of um, braided bamboo rings that's, that's tight against the, uh, the, the circle of the, of the bucket. And so at a certain point, these bamboo strips suddenly broke and all the staves and the bottom, the bottom of the bucket uh, um, all fell apart and the water was, was spilt. With this, in, and this is her, was her verse that came from her great realisation, with this and that, I tried to keep the bucket together, and then the bottom fell out. Where water does not collect, the moon does not dwell. There's, there's, there's a lot um, here in this, in this image of, um, with this and that, I tried to keep the bucket together. this and that, I tried to keep the bucket together and then the bottom fell out. You could take this, um, this um, image of, of her kind of shoring up this bucket, maybe tying pieces of string around it or, or extra pieces of bamboo strip to try and to try and keep it together um, with our holding on to our, our um, ego identity. There's a, there's a very insightful short commentary um, in, in the hidden lamp that goes with this or ref reflection, we could say, that goes with this um, story, and it's by um, somebody called Merle Kodo Boyd. Um, 
just a little bit of biographical material about her in here. Um, Yeah, here it is. Um, she's a Zen priest and teacher in the Mayazumi glass lineage and a member of the Zen, Zen peacemaker community. She leads the Lincroft Zen Sangha in Monmouth County, New Jersey. And here's what she writes. For several years now, I have kept a picture of Chiono um, and her bucket on the bulletin board above my desk. It is a delicate 19th century woodbot plant of a young Chiono standing in the pale moonlight, a bottomless bucket at her feet, a puddle of water spreading across her path. The artist is Yoshitoshi. And um, I have a, I've managed to find an image of this online so for people to have a look at it after, after we get out of the Zendo. She says, I was drawn to Chiono's verse the first time I heard it. I was seized by the words... With this and that, I tried to keep the bucket together. But I did not, not know at the time that she is also thought to be Mugai Nyodai, whose name we chant in our morning dedication to our women ancestors. We also chant her name in our, our Pool of Radiance chant. When I first heard Chiono's voice, I had been practicing for 10 or 12 years. I was keenly aware of the constant tension of keeping the bucket together. I understood that the intent of practice was to relax my grip on the old bucket, but conditioning runs deep and the sense of personal identity is strong. Hearing the words, with this and that, I felt the exhaustion of years of vigilance all aimed at protecting my idea of myself. I felt the exhaustion of being my own obstacle. In other words, she was starting to get sick of that, 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 that tightly held sense of identity. She was sick of this old bucket she, that was shored up. With, um, ties. The, um, the Tibetans use this very vivid uh, expression for um, our ego, which we, we hold together as a as a um, um, an entity. We imagine that it's a solid entity, when in fact it's a perishing collection, um, just a, a collection of the five the five skandhas, all of which keep shifting and changing. She, she continues, our Zen practice is medicine to this conditioning. All the practices within Zen challenge the illusion of the perfect bucket. Zazen, the teacher-student relationship, ritual, sangha relationships. As much as I may wish to appear competent at all times, I cannot immerse myself in Zen practice without a willingness to come apart. Sometimes it's appropriate to stop patching things back together. What then allows us to leave the bits and pieces scattered on the ground, like the splinters of the bucket around Chiono's feet? 
interesting she mentions here the different aspects of um, of our, our Zen um, training and practice. Not just Zazen, but working closely with the teacher and Doksan. So many ways that that can challenge our sense of our, of our identity. Ritual, dropping our own own uh, the way we might want to go or preferences, and just and just becoming part of a of a ritual. Sangha relationships, intimate relationships, working with people, all of these things um, help us to to um, see the ways that we we hold things together, hold on to our sense of identity. And and if we're if we're practicing sincerely, then our um, we'll start to see the ways that we we hold ourselves together more clearly, and our defensiveness will and our armour will start to drop away a bit. She continues: We are conditioned to keep the bucket from falling to pieces. Unique personal circumstances can intensify this general conditioning. I was the first in I was in the first generation of southern black children consciously raised to enter integrated schools. In such circumstances, everything seems to ride on keeping it together, especially in public, and so we were conscientious and hypervigilant in order to prevent disaster. Because going into an alien and unfriendly environment, a hostile environment often, where um, people could not be trusted, and yet we Zen students have chosen a path that calls us in the opposite direction, in spite of our conditioning, we are called to awareness rather than vigilance and here I think she means defensive vigilance that 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 um, um, kind of raising of a of an armor we are on a path of no water no moon our conditioning tells us that it is a risky path and yet we sense its offer of freedom and feel called to take it Ironically, it was precisely that condition of keeping it all together that gave me the courage to walk into a Zen center for the first time. I had been trained to tolerate the circumstance of being other, to maintain a public identity in places where I was allowed but possibly not welcome. Like the schools and libraries of my childhood, Zen centers offered something that I deeply needed, a place to experience my life in the world more deeply. I hoped I would be welcome at a Zen center, and I also knew that it could be otherwise. To walk into this uncertainty, I relied on being outwardly upright while keenly aware of inner fears. In other words, she, she needed a strong ego and a great deal of courage to walk into a Zen center where she may have been the only black person.
and and being being in a minority and being in a in a in a often hostile environment, this was an, it would be a necessity for survival in a sense to be together in this kind of a way, uh, where self awareness would not be um, a luxury but really a necessity, a survival mechanism. As Zen students, we live between Shiono's first two lines and her second two lines, between keeping things from falling apart and letting them fall apart. Knowing how to keep things together is a valuable skill. It was knowing how to care for things that led Chiono to continually patch the bucket. When it fell apart, she made excellent use of that circumstance as well. Our liberation deepens with the refinement of our capacity for flexibility and discernment. Um, here, this is an important point she's making, that, that um, we may, if, if we get into practice and we start to go into states of absorption, we may, may start to worry that we're going to somehow lose it, um, fall apart, not be, be functional any longer. But in fact, um, what our Zen practice enables us to do is to move between um, holding fast and letting go, we could say, between, between that, that place of, of um, holding things together, the patched bucket, and letting go into that bottomless bucket where there's no no mind, no self, no object, no other. We move between, you could say, between the relative world and the absolute world. Roshi Kaplow was fond of saying, um, you can't fall out of the universe. We do have a sense of falling out sometimes, but we're not really falling out of the universe, where we may just be shedding our ideas about that universe. The liberation I was raised to seek is one aspect of the liberation we speak of in the Dharma. In the community of my childhood, our efforts were directed primarily toward gaining interest into schools, access to employment, to housing, to services that made life more comfortable. But awareness of our essential and undeniable freedom comes with the awareness that we and all things are without self. The one who is liberated must be allowed to disappear like the water and the moon. Moving between patched bucket and bottomless bucket, I can exercise my freedom to keep things together or to let things come apart according to the circumstances. I have come to trust the true freedom of living where the moon does not dwell. To have trust in... what we can't know in advance. We, we, we've talked a lot in, 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 in Taisho and other situations of how, 
how we're, we're at this time, we're at this turning point as, as, as the human race, when it becomes more and more urgent that we break free of our old frames, our old um, uh, paradigms. I heard someone um, calling this time that we are at um, a malleable hour that because of, of the pandemic there's this this we're at this time when when people are more accepting of um, change, possibly radical change. I'd like to finish this talk with a little um, um, some passages from uh, the Susan Murphy book, uh, Minding the Earth, Mending the World. Uh, we started off looking at this in, in Taisho a few weeks ago when we had our, our two-day um, urban retreat. And she's talking about the same thing here, um, of letting go of restrictive uh, ways of seeing and coming more in, into tune with, with reality, with, with things as they are. She says, Practicing full accord with reality is always, like the universe itself, a work in progress. It requires holding yourself and your consciousness open toward the unknown in which we all dwell, in a curious rather than presuming way. Meditation is the act of paying reality the courtesy of wonder and friendly curiosity that sometimes is called non-judgmental attention, a process that never stops opening and revealing itself and clarifying what is needed at this moment. The discipline and love required for this is its own reward. It eases what the novelist Davis Foster Wallace called the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. The constant and gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. Having lost some treasure. Having lost something that's at the core of our lives. And for, for many of us, this sense, this gnawing sense, is um, what what drives us in our practice. From the Zen tradition comes a unique way of easing this gnawing sense of displacement or loss. It's called a koan. The word means public case because while we seem remarkably able to hide it from ourselves, the boundless reality a koan reveals is in fact in plain view for all from the beginning. It has always been so close that there's no gaps whatsoever and yet we have to break the frame of ordinary thought to see this and heal our sudden, subtle self-alienation. It takes all that we are to come down to earth to the liberating truth of all that we really are. But that's also its gift Koans trigger the healing of crisis in consciousness, 
that closes the gap we had forced between self and all that is. She says it takes all that we are to come down to earth, to the liberating truth. This is, this is another way of talking about samadhi, that we have to become completely absorbed in this moment or in the, or in the koan, the question of the koan, to truly break the old bucket, get beyond the old frames, to respond, we need to free ourselves from a too narrow sense of self and an unquestioned assumption or self-entitled priority as a species. That's, that's part of the old frame. A little bit later she continues, do we have any choice but to fight, fight our way to this? Are we not answerable to the life of the earth? At every moment of life, this extraordinary gift bestowed upon us by our magical parent, planet, are we willing to welcome the difficulty as our great chance? Surely we have to live up to this unprecedented moment we are in or else cover our faces and sink away into oblivion, deeply shamed. Again, skipping on, but I need, I see the great adventure of our time as not losing heart or going crazy, but regaining humanity in the course of fighting for a planet where our children's children can safely flourish. In a sense, not going, being able to fall apart without falling apart. There is no map for this, no map for this wild adventure no ten-point plan, no guarantees. In all respects, it is oddly like life itself, discovered in the act of living. But win or lose, it's the great adventure on offer, and I am here to urge that no human being worthy of the name can ever give up on it. Humanity might not make the leap the earth has placed before us. This possibility, too, must be included in our reckoning. Nature writer Barry Lopez said, There are simply no answers to some of the great pressing questions. You continue to live them out, making your life a worthy expression of leaning into the light. The end of the quote. Going up again and again to the extraordinary circumstances of being alive in the light of courage and uncertainty is, as he says, just what happens when you open up. We have forgotten our reverence for the earth and put aside justice where it retards profitability. Well, the earth is bringing us back to our knees again and back to each other in one way or another. And she was writing this um, several years prior to the pandemic. The understanding that there is a world beyond human control, human invention, human understanding, says Lopez, is the virtue of reverence. And reverence may be rekindled in us by sharply waking up to how much has simply gone wrong and grown profoundly unacceptable. For, as Lopez says, 
there is another response to horror besides self-destruction. There is a way to enter into the blackness that human beings are capable of and not allow us it to define what it is to be human. And now um, Murphy goes on to um, give a wonderful image um, which I had never heard before, but it comes from Thoreau, from um, a piece he wrote called Winged Life or Winged Life. Here it is. The life in us is like the water in a river. It may rise this year higher than man has ever known it and flood the parched uplands. Everyone has heard the story which has gone the rounds of New England of a strong and beautiful bug which came out of a dry leaf of an old table of apple tree wood which had stood in a farmer's kitchen for 60 years. From an egg deposited in the living tree many years earlier still as appeared by counting the annual layers beyond it. In other words, the rings of growth in this piece of wood that was part of the table. Which was heard gnawing out for several weeks, hatched perchance by the heat of an urn. So this, this, um, this bug that hatched out of a, of a table that was 60 years old in a, in a farmer's kitchen. The beautiful and winged life can be buried for ages under the woodenness of the dead dry life of a society whose imagination has become dry and dead to its living reality. Once deposited in the green and living tree that had become its tomb, the kicked creature is imagined by Thoreau as obscurely gnawing its way out for years before it bursts forth so unexpectedly to enjoy its perfect summer life at last. That's the winged life of the whole earth and of all who have eyes to see. Every crisis is the chance to see what we have been missing. This great, slow-building global crisis is our tremendous chance to see ourselves more clearly. Mistakes are our way of enlightenment. Difficulty hatches our intelligence. A problem is needed to tell us what is missing, what we have not been seeing. Freedom comes from the bucket breaking. A little bit later, Murphy says, as Naomi Klein has said, climate change is not the issue. It is instead the unmistakable message that many of our most cherished ideas are no longer viable. And if we look and listen without preconceived ideas, it is also telling us exactly which ones appear to have been dreamed up on some other planet than this one. Climate change is intimating that we have some wondrous but as yet undiscovered ideas to learn to cherish, ideas that can teach us a little more about cherishing.
we're reading on on uh, Sunday, Barry Lopez again talking about how our present predicament is is evidence of of a failure of love. She continues, and if human beings are here on earth for any good reason at all, it is surely to learn about love. That is the great adventure, always worth the price of admission. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the 